0: Welcome, everybody, to this Edge of Mind podcast, where my guest today is the noted and esteemed author, Bruce Tift. We engage, I believe, in a rich cross pollinating discussion about the interface between psychology and spirituality the developmental and fruitional paths, or the paths of growing up and waking up, respectively. Bruce talks about the importance of holding opposing and sometimes even contradictory views simultaneously without any hope or desire for closure or resolution. We're all a collection of limitations, so how can we best work with these limits? What constitute a real obstacle in this view, and how can we work with these obstacles? And what about the difference between recovery practices and achievement practices? Our conversation then turns to the distraction value of our problems and how ego, as an arrested form of development, is invested in maintaining struggle as a way to maintain itself. Bruce then talks about anxiety and fear and the importance of an integral approach in relating to both. Because not all fear and anxiety is problematic. On the spiritual path... Anxiety can lead to real growth, and fear can be a sign that you're doing something right. How about the place of shadow work, and why doesn't Bruce favor that term? How do we best work with all our blind spots? The practice of relationship is unexplored, and how we unconsciously hire our partners over and over to play out unconscious processes and our avoidant tendencies how does Bruce sustain his enthusiasm for providing therapy after decades of his clinical practice? Does Buddhism need therapy in both senses of that phrase? Is his view exhilarating or intimidating? Bruce's wide ranging approach gives you permission to be human and to delight in this wonderful and horrible thing we call life. Find out for yourself why he is one of the most sought after therapists <laughs> the entire spiritual community hey welcome everybody to the edge of mind podcast where my guest today is really quite a dear friend of mine and i would argue one of the most brilliant therapists on the planet um bruce tift and so i'm going to read as usual a short bio um we're going to drop into a set of topics that i have a deep interest in um, for decades and um, explore domains of mind and heart that I think will be of interest and benefit to all of us. So Bruce Tiff, MA LMFT, holds a master's degree in psychology and has a licensed marriage and family therapist who uses a combination of Western and Buddhist approaches. A student of Chugyong Trungpa Rinpoche, he taught at Naropa University for 25 years. I knew him when he lived here in Boulder, but now he's living in San Luis Obispo in California. And he's trying to talk me into come out there and, and visit. And uh, before you know it, Bruce, I'm going to be a neighbor. So thank <laughs> you so much for joining us. It's really a delight to finally um, get you here and, and talk about your amazing book. We're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about the genesis and the gifts of this amazing book, Already Free, What Does It Psychotherapy on the Path of Liberation? Um, but I do want to, uh, to share at the end or at the back of this book, I was invited to give a little blurb. And this is what I wrote um, that applies, really, I feel just as strongly today as I did um, years ago when I wrote this. So this is my riffing on his book. A rare gift from a virtuoso, a masterful operator's manual for life, for how to remove suffering and live authentically. Beautifully written, immensely practical, and infinitely wise, this book is destined to become a classic. Read it. It can change your life. I still feel that way, Bruce. It's, it's it's really an amazing book. Well, so thank you for taking time to, to chat with us. I'm really looking forward to this.
1: Thank you. That's very generous of you. I, of course, wouldn't call myself some of those things that you did, but that's nice of you.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, they're highly deserved. And, and so let, let's start with... Um, with what inspired you to, to actually write this book? I mean, it's it's really a, a remarkable contribution. I've read it numerous times, and every time I go through it, I derive more and more of the insights that you put together for lack of a better term, the best of the East, the best of the West. Um, but before we get into some of the technicalities about the developmental and the fruitional views and that and whatnot, what was it? What was the driving force behind you penning this book? Well, uh
1: Actually, um, a friend of mine, um, Diane Israel, who is n- not alive currently, I know, Diane introduced uh, me to Tammy Simon, back GF probably 13 years ago. And she invited me to do a um, an audio series based on <clears throat> some of these ideas. So actually, I did the audio series first. And then a couple of years later, she asked if I'd extend it into a book. So actually, the audio came first, and then oh, a couple of right. years later, the book. So, uh, unlike you, I am not a prolific author, uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, it was very helpful uh, to do it. You know, deepened my thinking, uh, helped move things along, but um, it it I didn't have like a um, like an inspiration to be an author or anything.
0: And so, so talk to us then a little bit more um, directly about really the two to the two vectors of this book, where where Buddhism meets psychotherapy on the path of liberation. Um, talk to us a little bit about the the developmental approach uh, versus the fruitional approach. Like, what what are these two vectors um, independently of each other? How do they stand? And then, of course, what is their relationship? to each other, and why should we be interested? Why should we bother with exploring these two options?
1: Well, there's no reason why we should be. (laughs) Uh,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But if somebody happens to be, uh, maybe to start at the end uh, of your question, I think increasingly it has made sense to me to um, hold contradictory or opposing or different thoughts, feelings, experiences, emotions, with no fantasy of resolution ever. Um, And you certainly have worked a lot from the point of view of Bardo with that. Mm -hmm. So it seems to me that that actually is the nature of our momentary experiencing always. Um, And that what seems to me the best approximation of a complex, non-divided reality is to learn to hold contradictory views without taking sides. And so I think when I first wrote the book, it was more of a uh, an extension of, oh, so many different factors. Certainly Trunk Mukha was profound, but also just being married, having kids, doing my psychotherapy practice, where it seemed obvious that um, no one view, certainly including Buddhism, Buddhism, is going to capture the complexity of things. And so that's why I think one of the uh, sort of the views of, of Vajrayana that probably all, always resonated at first, not so consciously, this idea of um, that the uh, the aliveness and the intensity, the openness of um, uh, engaging with uh apparently opposite uh experience without some fantasy that there's supposed to be an integration that leads to a new uh answer or reference point uh to take so uh that's the larger view probably and then developmentally um you know i worked for I'm still working actually, but for a long time uh, in therapy, um, it just seemed very accurate to me over and over and over again that uh, the way a person was engaging with their own experience, with their partner, with life, was very resonant with experiences they had uh, as children growing up. And so that basic sort of Western view that our experience as young, dependent, immature, little beings uh, who have to adapt to their parents, their family, their gender training, their culture, all of that, um, that that had very persistent and powerful influences, so that most of us, in certain aspects of our life, especially the arena of intimacy, or what is most sort of vulnerable for us, uh, tend to still unconsciously be engaging with Our life, our experience, uh, as if we're still a young child. Um, And that's not wrong, of course, but for most of us, it's decades out of date, and is not really based on currently accurate experience or uh, adult realities. So that developmental view, I think is, uh, uh, I think it's a very accurate, useful way of bringing out into one's awareness out into the open, the possibility that much of what we take to be uh, just the way things are, especially in in relationships and things like that, uh, is a formula that we still rely on. uh, But often the benefit is not worth the price tag. Mm -hmm. So Western therapy could be understood as our efforts to bring ourselves into conscious participation with our current adult capacities and our current adult realities. And because these young survival strategies are organized around at least emotional survival, we rarely uh, want to mess with them because they're usually associated with a lot of anxiety because it feels like survival. And so it's not easy work. And so a lot of different Western therapies are based on this idea that uh, our young experience persists in inappropriate ways in the present, and that there are a variety of ways to uh, bring that into awareness, to challenge our identification with it, to um, cultivate a more adult uh, capacity and sense of self and that probably our lives will work better because it's more in alignment with our current reality. So I happen to think that's, you know, very useful.
0: Yeah, it's it's incredibly um, integral in spirit. I mean, you know, the capacity to to dance between these two different modes of looking at mind, looking at behavior, looking at reality um, is really resonant with with the way I roll in terms of honoring and incorporating all the different wisdom traditions, East, West, North, and South. And so to me, it's really, it, it, I found it very helpful um, as that kind of juxtaposition to look at exactly like you're saying, these, these outdated operating systems, right. That that, that were installed unbeknownst to us in, in our families of origin uh, up until fundamentally not fundamentally continued, but most archetypally up until age seven, and, and that we spend so much of our lives in a certain way, almost hypnotized by these um, installed and sometimes not so helpful operating systems. And so, to me, it, it, it's also really elegant. Um, I roll with this a lot these days, Bruce. Is the the notion of uh, challenging the traditional Aristotelian um, yes/no, black black white, dead alive, awake asleep approaches? It's either this or it's it's either that. And and I, I love this because. It allows us to expand our horizons for um, accepting, embracing, being more tolerant, more open, and also the the extraordinary power of uh, being comfortable with dissonance, with ambiguity, with with lack of resolution. Because it it seems to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that a large part of the egoic operating system is the sense for closure and stability and ground. ground. Um, and so when you when we develop this capacity by opening our hearts and minds to hold um these seemingly opposing views in a larger framework then the need for resolution then the the need for closure is less um important as it once really was so i, I really I, I, that's one of the ways i relate to your work that i found extraordinarily helpful can you is it viable in your perspective bruce to talk about um <clears throat> The the relationship of psychology to spirituality, there's so many ways to kind of map this out. Is it viable in your worldview to look at, at them as, as a as a, a spectrum, like psycho-spiritual development? That psych- spirituality transcends but includes psychology? Is that one way that, that speaks to you? Or if you were to somehow map these out, is it is it too facile to say that that the psycho-spiritual spectrum is in fact along one particular bandwidth? I'm curious how you relate more specifically. This is my languaging for the developmental versus the fruitional approach, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I would probably bring that same view that we were just discussing and uh, imagine that there are a variety of ways of relating those two, none of which is going to capture the complexity of our actual human experience. So I am more of a fan of uh, what works rather than what's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, we have to have adequately accurate relative experiencing or we'll <laughs> make a lot of mistakes. But that's different than thinking that any view is going to capture the complexity of reality. You know, they're, they're just concepts or tools, I think. So uh, I think different things work for different people. And I would, I usually encourage people to just do whatever seems to work. But what work of course what works has to be uh, in alignment with what's most important for that person what their intentions are what their priorities are so that's often a useful thing to start with so if somebody is wanting to have a sort of an idea of uh, a continuity between psychology and spiritual pathwork then they should make use of that type of model if somebody is interested in what we were talking about as far as training ourselves into coming back, because it's not easy, of course, but coming back over and over again, at least as a practice, to that non-graspable uh, experiencing in between reference points, mm-hmm. then it's helpful to see them in sort of, well, this focuses on this, and this focuses on that. That happens to be more my bias, given my uh, priorities, uh, values. So I would say that, a major uh, difference between the two is that Western therapy, as an expression of Western culture, takes the sense of being a self as just a given as a reality. And so of course, Western therapy is going to appropriately uh, be organized around improving and protecting that sense of self. Nothing wrong with that. It's just that I I don't think that's a, a really the most accurate understanding um but a spiritual path let's say you know so many different paths but let buddhist which is my training Mm -hmm. assert assert the view that there is a sense of self uh, uh, a feeling of self an appearance of self but upon investigation we're never going to find any essential nature to that appearance no objective existence no essential nature so the uh uh, a more Buddhist view, I think, is to uh, consider the potential for a uh, a conscious experience and unconditional freedom as the intention, rather than improving the quality of oneself as the intention. And those are pretty mm, big differences, actually. But again, <clears throat> from a Buddhist point of view, we we take the improving the quality of oneself as a relative uh, appearance. So we don't have to try to disprove it or say it's wrong. Mm -hmm. But personally, I would say that that is uh, less deep meaning carries less potential for deep transformative change Mm -hmm. as a Buddhist view, but that's my particular bias.
0: Yeah, I mean, one one of the things I really appreciate about you personally and, 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 and your work in this book is that you, you have one of the most sensitive BS meters I've ever experienced. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you get, you've got an antenna out every pore of your body that is just so tuned to fake news, right? It, it's, well, like,
1: if only I could turn that against myself. Right?
0: well that's actually that's actually a somewhat prescient statement because this is where I was going to run with this <laughs> somewhat connected to this is your your extraordinary gift to in fact look at blind spots to to unveil um structures domains of experience that that really by definition are so intractable so difficult to to unearth and and, and to discover and so this to me is is colossal both in a, a psychological and spiritual context because I mean I'm preaching to the choir here but so much of what we do is dictated by these unconscious processes, and I've heard some neuroscientists say as much as ninety-five percent of what we do is dictated by what I playfully call the forces of the dark side. <laughs> so and so, so, so talk to us a little bit about about these nasty, insidious blind spots, um, and then I'll be a little bit more specific about this. But how do you work with them in your own life? How do you how do you point those out? Um, to your clients when you're working with them, um, because I, I you know on one level, from an inigoic subsari point of view, ignorance really is bliss. um and I, and I I roll with this a little bit in in my nocturnal meditations, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, and the like, because that's really' as a hybrid state of consciousness. That's where the conscious mind can face the un- unconscious mind directly. And, and there's just a there is a heap of, of of blindness um archetypal non-lucidity so in that language this is another way you know to talk about it within the nocturnal rubric but talk to us a little bit about these blind spots, um how, how you work with them in your own life, how you work with them with your clients and then I'm going to back off a little bit and be a little bit more general about traditions altogether
1: well uh, again, if we consider the view that, any paradigm, any way of understanding is probably going to be most effective if it's in alignment with our intentions rather than think it's a description of reality in some just one to one way. Then, if from a Buddhist point of view, the intention is openness, then unconditional kindness is a more useful attitude than to find pathology. Mm-hmm. And so I don't happen to see blind spots as uh, nasty, (laughs) dark, you know, (laughs) problems. Uh, I would prefer to uh, to reframe a blind spots as out of date or inaccurate efforts to take the best care of ourselves possible.
0: Mm, Beautiful.
1: And so uh, that's how I usually present it to people I might work with. That uh, you know any. And more as a curiosity, like any understanding about why you're pretending to be a victim, you know, what, how is that taking care of yourself? What do you think you're protecting underneath that maybe without uh, saying it's wrong to be that way? Because as soon as you say there's bad parts of being human, not, not, not uh, hurtful. We're not saying there's not hurtful parts. There's not parts that harm ourselves or others, but bad is sort of more moralistic, usually like nasty. (laughs) As soon as we go there, then we are in dualistic organization. And uh, we're not in that open ground, um, where every moment, whatever a moment is, every moment actually is fresh, open, it's not, there's no bias, uh, until we uh, engage from a certain view. So. Basically, I I prefer to understand and work with what we call neurosis basically as out of date efforts to take the best care of ourselves possible rather than as a problem that's supposed to be healed or cured or uh, somehow transcended.
0: Yeah, that's really great. And also, I think when we start to um, separate out bad from good and whatnot not only is it is it dualistic but if we take it even further um evil this this the the tendency that people have to 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 reify these particular states and and so therefore and again please correct me if it's if, if I'm being naive here when there is this traffic about the evil of these particular individuals or whatnot um how much of it of that is due to again this facile notion or impulse to to for closure in a, in, in a, in a not-so-healthy way, you know, to reify what basically could be, and again, this is where I want to make sure I'm not being naive, what basically could be described as just really intense confusion. So do you find it helpful to, to look at, if, at um, classifications, labels in that way, to realize that they have a provisional validity, but a real uh, shadow element to this is actually reifying these particular um So called characteristics and then the the deleterious effects of doing that?
1: Sure. And the uh, impulse to reify, I think, of course, serves the function that if I have a solid reference point, then the implication unconsciously is that I'm a solid uh, experiencer, observer, whatever. And so I think that's usually unconsciously the the function. But uh, I think it's very helpful to tease apart the process of reification, um, taking our experience, you know, as if it's of cosmic significance, and if as if it's personal, to tease that apart, which has to do with all of our experiencing, from specific relative experiencing, like calling somebody evil, or what they do evil, maybe to be more accurate. But on a relative level, I don't know, I honestly don't know. if. I don't know I, I I honestly don't have a any clarity about uh whether on a relative level there exists what we could call evil, but it sure looks like it you know mm-hmm. but I could simultaneously hold the view that this person is acting in a very evil way and it's probably coming out of very unconscious pain and confusion, but that doesn't excuse it right. and if that person is such a you know uh a toxic presence in this life, uh, I wouldn't have a problem with their being executed. Or uh, you know, I mean, I'm not a great Buddhist. You know, if a mosquito gets on my hand, I'll swat it. Sorry, I usually say sorry, but I'm not
0: gonna recite a mantra, recite a mantra after you swat it. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes I do that, but I don't <laughs> you know, uh, I still go ahead and kill it. I mean I'm a bad Buddhist, you know. But uh if somebody I think Trump or Rinpoche, when I was quite young, I was such a relief when he, at some point, said that if he was in a room with somebody who was going to push the button and launch a nuclear war, he'd kill that person.
0: Oh, totally. Oh, yeah.
1: And I said, "Whoa, what a relief! Here's not somebody who's actually practical, not going to take refuge and always be nice or something." You
0: know? So yeah, the place for a wrathful action. But let's return. to I want to pack a little bit more directly here, Bruce. The notion of blind spots. Um, in all the ways that we really don't see, I mean, you know, Christ saying allegedly on the cross, "Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do." Socrates, somewhere in his life, the difference <laughs> between you and me, is I know that I don't know. So, I, I think this level of of openness and humility to one's own blind spots is is an extraordinary person. And so, I, I want to talk about this on a, on a more personal, individual level, and then on a more kind of ideological level. How can we, as as Practitioners, those interested in psycho-spiritual development and evolution, outside of working with someone like you, how can we become a little bit more aware of what we're not aware of?
1: Uh, Well, uh, that's a huge issue, of course, and there's so many different theories and practices. I think, in my understanding, it's helpful to start with the, to me, the obvious accuracy or at least the possibility that all of us on a relative level are just a collection of limitations mm. and so the real question isn't uh oh how do i work with these uh, few blind spots <laughs> it's more like how is it that i have any clarity at all right right well <laughs> yeah, that's so sad
0: so sad but so true right
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so to me it's not about really healing something or Getting rid of blind spots is more like having an attitude, like you said earlier. I, I've heard that. Who knows, you know? But that maybe ninety-five percent of our experience will never arise into conscious awareness, so we don't have any conscious choice. So, to me, the the point is to uh, generate a conscious attitude, uh, open whatever arises in the present moment, which will always be a relatively limited range of experiencing, if we. Are not yet talking about just open awareness. So I just assume that all of my experience is uh, more limited than not. But there are certain types of limitation that can ha- cause harm to myself and others, and those perhaps would be a priority to investigate. And so, as far as what somebody might do, uh, a very basic uh, practice that I often suggest people consider is that anytime they realize that they're in some a reactive experience, a reactive state of mind, they're feeling emotionally reactive, um, their feelings are very exaggerated, they're very impulsive, or they're into, or, you know, uh, in sort of hamster wheel type of thinking or blame or apology and stuff. I suggest that they ask, oh, I wonder what I might be experiencing right at this moment that I'm trying to escape from. Yeah. Not to answer intellectually, but from a Buddhist view, just bring attention into a medium embodied sensation level experience, absolutely no interpretation, no commentary, no story, and just hang out with, let's say, uh, what we would call vulnerability. And currently my best sort of, understanding of emotional vulnerability is that underneath the various expressions of that is i think just formless panic and so i sort of invite people to check it out and see if there uh some moment of panic has just been uh touched or triggered and then see if they are interested in staying as embodied as possible and say well so what is it killing me yeah. am i turning into some horrible person am i turn into a victim, uh, it, where, where is this evidence of harm or damage, is my survival actually being threatened even though my body and my evolutionary biology and my emotions say, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, we're gonna die, you know? <laughs> That's what we have to get used to tolerating that sort of panic uh, and hang out with it long enough to see if in fact I have to do anything about it because you and I, most people listening to this uh, program, have very fortunate life circumstances and when we feel that panic probably 99 of the time there's not an actual threat we should check it out in case there is but probably not so we have the luxury of not allowing our evolutionary biology to run the show and so the more that somebody can just assume that all of our relative experience has this sort of as if quality that starts to, I think, help an attitude of inquiry or investigation. Anytime there seems to be something that's not working well, or that we seem to be captured or whatever we call it. Um, and then, to me, a more general practice of embodied immediacy is very helpful, where maybe once a week, or maybe 100 times a day, We just bring our attention back into embodied sensation level experience, no interpretation, no commentary, just so we start training ourselves to be present in our immediate non-conceptual experiencing, not with the intention of getting rid of our conceptual experiencing, but bringing in that same sense we've talked about of contrast or lack of uh, resolution where, oh, uh, I feel like my partner's really making me mad right now. Oh, but if I just stay in my body, I don't even find a sensation of mad. You know, my heart's beating fast, my stomach's tight, my fists are clenched or something like that. Well, so what? Why do I have to do anything about this? But then without taking sides, without, you know, spiritual bypassing of just saying, oh, it's all uh, empty of essential nature. I don't need to do anything. I'm just going to... Float along on a cloud of Bodhi, uh right. generosity, or something like that. <laughs> no, both are there.
0: There's, there's really so much here. I mean, really, my languaging would be this, this quality of of radical acceptance. You know, the capacity. I love my, one of my favorite definitions of meditation these days, Bruce, is uh, habituation to openness. Mm-hmm. Basically, just you know, we're so contracted, but we're basically as a York, Beings, which is really in certain ways the archetype of closure. Meditation as an antidote is habituation to openness to space. But but this what you're saying here goes really deep because when I look at this, I I, I can see this entire approach is to what is it that I'm trying to escape from as a type of Hansel and Gretel follow the breadcrumbs back to reality strategy that on yeah. Yeah, yeah. On one level, we we do this on a psychological level, which is already a little bit more epiphenomenal. It's already a little bit more of an expression. But I, I, what I look at more and more these days, Bruce, is is this kind of uh, healthy reductionism—the the fact that 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 almost like a fractal, which is big these days, the reality is iterative. That there are fundamental principles in play. That um, are basically they, they give rise to the the multitudinous nature of their all experience, and in a certain way, this is a kind of a healthy reduction, healthy reductionism. So what I hear from you here, and I want to see if this lands with you, is that we can take this very um, approach of spiritual whatever inquiry, analytic meditation, vipassana, as a way to to basically um, take our way all the way back, follow the bread comes back to in fact this fundamental formless panic that I would argue as a Buddhist practitioner and a spiritual practitioner, that 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 is the fundamental avoidance strategy. And and this this has colossal implications because, you know me, I love to play with words. It's very interesting when you look at the word distraction. It literally means to pull apart. I mean, that is so interesting to me. And so when I study the death and dying literature, the Bardo literature, I see that what happens in, in that languaging the moment of death, it's the grand opening, right? It's the grand opening, forced meditation, the grand opening. If we're unable to, to be, to mix our minds with that level of space, then what do we do? We contract. It's the fundamental distraction that then becomes iterated every time we're distracted in physical life, every time we pull away from one-to-one and experiences in the way you're talking about it. So I, I think this particular approach is what you're just saying has tremendous application to not only um, in a certain way deconstruct our experience in a healthy deconstructive way back to the fundamental ingredients of our avoidance strategies, but taking again all the way down from the psychological, psychological, now into the spiritual, dare we say deeper levels, where it goes all the way to this foundational formless panic of what? The truth of our inherent non-existence, emptiness. The things that you talk about so beautifully in your book about loss of personal identity in a space that's large. So I know I'm throwing a lot of noodles on the wall here, but you you just ping, you pinged on some really essential points here that I just want to see if what I'm saying makes sense to you. And if not, please um, help me out.
1: Well, it certainly does. I, I don't need to help you out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not so sure about that. But You need to help me out with some of <laughs> the <most> ideas. <laughs> but uh, yes, I would say, given my view, that I usually use the formless panic on the Western side when I'm talking about the nature of vulnerability, because that in my experience, which is limited, uh, that's sort of in at least Western depth therapies, that's sort of the bottom line is, is emotion or a relationship with emotion. Um, and so I think it's very helpful for people to be introduced to the deconstructive view to yeah. go beneath the appearance of emotion to sensation and then beneath apparent yeah. sensation to this sense of immediate formless panic and then from a buddhist point of view i if somebody's interested i uh you know share the view uh that perhaps even deeper is just open awareness which provides absolutely no support for personal identity so i would say that I think Buddhist view goes deeper than the Western view, which sort of stops at emotion. But again, I think the point is to hold both without thinking that the, uh, we're supposed to choose sides. Well, uh, my sort of style is that I don't tend to take on beliefs unless I have some personal experience that seems to support that, sort of uh, idea. And so it makes sense to me that uh, our various blind spots are contributing to areas of dysfunction on all levels, physical, energetic, emotional, conceptual, social relational, everything. Uh, I don't tend to see uh, things like cancer as something that's separate from me. It's not like what am I doing to make the cancer? I mean, you and I know have talked that I have this cancer that's incurable. It's not killing me, you know, lucky to have some modern drugs. But I don't think of the cancer as something that's happening to me. I think of it as just another part of this complex self that I am. I mean, it's in my body. It's it's how could I say it's not me? It's like the mosquito, okay, that's part of life. I'm part of life, but I'm going to swap the mosquito. Sorry, mosquito. I'm going to take some drugs to try to uh, you know, uh, uh, stop the cancer from progressing. But I don't tend to think of it as uh, evidence that I'm doing something wrong. I, I'd be open to exploring that. But I just say, I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I don't have an intuition. If I did, I would go... You know with that approach but it's more like it seems to me that for everything i'm aware of every clarity i have there's literally tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of things i'm not aware of and so i don't see the what i'm not aware of is the problem and and that i don't see my goal at this point Mm. of cleaning up all my neuroses it's more to me to be open to whatever's arising in the present moment. And if it has a neurotic quality to it, uh, hopefully I'll recognize that because it feels different than being you know, embodied and open and kind and open-hearted, and all that stuff. It feels different. And hopefully I'll, first of all, just be aware of it and then make a choice about whether to investigate it more and whether there's some work that would be helpful. But I don't personally have an agenda to be free of cancer or free of neurosis. Mm-hmm. My personal agenda is more to sort of live in the experience of freedom, while simultaneously I'm doing what I can to improve the quality of my experiencing.
0: And so, the, and say more a little bit about specifically you're circumambulating this, but say a little bit more about living in the experience of freedom, the the experience of radical acceptance, the experience of openness. The just did you say a little bit more about what that actually means to you? Yeah. Well,
1: obviously. From a Buddhist point of view, um, open awareness, which is the language I would use to point in that direction, there's no language that is going to uh, define or capture what we call freedom. It's sort of almost uh, by definition without ascribable qualities, so you can't ever pin it down, but it's like the finger in the moon. It's helpful to have views and language and practices that point us in a direction. Because if we don't have that those pointers, we could be walking around and never see the moon. But the finger isn't the moon. So to me, uh, I prefer the language of uh, conscious participation and open awareness as one way to talk about the experience of uh, unconditional
0: freedom. And, and this could actually, I mean, let, let me throw this your way. I think on one level, wouldn't it also, when you take it all the way, or at least approaching, I'm careful to 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 get to, to um, descriptions of phenomena that intimate closure because again I, I'm with you on this. But I think one thing, one caveat to throw in here because this gets very subtle. One is the freedom from the need to be free. I mean, even that, right? You, even that, because that otherwise then that subtle ideology or approach can become somewhat problematic. So freedom
1: well, to. Be- well, we okay. focus we focus on the need aspect in that sentence. We don't focus on the healthy inspiration to experience freedom, yeah. but the need usually has a compulsive quality, and that's what we would address. And the the compulsivity is not about freedom. So, yes, we then say, oh, wait a minute. What is it I'm trying to escape from? What is What alternative reality am I wishing I lived with? What complaint do I have about reality? I mean, that's a basic Buddhist view that one simple way of talking about unnecessary suffering is wanting reality to be other than it is. And so, uh, an approach, uh, to, uh, a path and all, it seems to me, all path is relative experience, but it's has an intention to, uh, lead us out of itself. Uh, so, uh, one, uh, view is that we want to just keep, uh, Investigating views, uh, techniques, theories, practices that uh, take us into immediacy, out of any identification with form. But we, it, you know, Vajrayana view has a lot of what, from an egoic point of view, would call it, we, we would call paradox, which is we're trying to experience something in the present moment that we claim is not present, and. If we start having moments of experiencing freedom, let's say, then we can look back and say, oh, well that wasn't necessary, but apparently it was necessary to have this experience. And so we hold them both, we don't choose sides.
0: Yeah, and again, if we have a crucible, a container that's large enough, a mind and heart, again, habituation to open us, that's actually large enough to take what were previously contradictory or even opposing views and saying, I'm okay with this. This is really, just as a brief sidebar, this is so important even in philosophical and even scientific arenas, right? Way back in when they were trying to reconcile the properties of light, and one circumstance light was a particle and in another circumstance light was a wave. Aristotle and Newton said it can't be. Well, I mean, they're wrong, right? Who says it can't be? And so again, the, the challenge to our conditioned ways. But let me return to one thing here, because this again to me seems to be one of the hard essence contributions of your work. Is I often look again in my own experience as life, um, as a kind of a, at least unawakened life, as, a, as an extremely sophisticated avoidance strategy of, of on the relative level, some of the stuff you're talking about avoidance of unwanted experiences. And I love what you say there. Um, who says that life, where in the life contract does it say is supposed to feel good all the time, right? I, I like to say that, that uh, the spiritual path, authentic spirituality, is not about feeling about feeling good, it's fundamentally about getting real. Um, and then that real reality can can imply something like basic goodness. But to me, I, I, again kind of joining the the play of the psychological um spectrum of our being and the spiritual spectrum is life is a sophisticated avoidance strategy for the for the unwanted, the fearful, that fundamentally goes all the way down to this formless panic, which to me is all about fundamentally the escape from what are we trying to escape from? Well, the fundamental harsh noble truth of you know in Buddhism of emptiness, the fact that you don't exist, right? Which is fundamentally a fear of death. Um, so, talk to us a little bit about that. How how we're always, and again, if this resonates with you, how it how life could actually be. I mean, this is one way to talk about um, the Buddha, the awakened one. He he's no longer sleepwalking because he was actually able to see these patterns that normally in the unawakened mind would be patterns of just sleepwalking.
1: Well, as we were touching on earlier, I think it's just very practical to experience more frequent moments of openness, Mm -hmm. open awareness, open heartedness, presence, immediacy, embodiment, things like that, because I think the quality of our experience is better. I don't see it as esoteric as much as very practical. But it's not the right way to do it. Some people are drawn to that some people are not drawn to that. So I think it's very easy any for anybody on a spiritual path or in a different way for people in therapy to uh, project what is what they found helpful as if other people should too. But I have the opinion, I can't prove anything that everybody is trying the very best uh, to take care of themselves at every moment of their life. And it's just is it working well enough or not? Yeah. And so when I might be working with somebody, I don't have an uh, agenda to be an agent of change or improvement. I might work in that way. But my intention is to do my best job as limited as it is to be a location of awareness. And so Uh, that uh, what I try to bring to others in my work is basically the same as what we might try to bring to ourselves. We want to perhaps keep bringing our conscious experience into openness and all the different versions that that approach that relatively. Um, And so I tend to see uh, sort of, let's say, psychological work as uh, a support for increasing the frequency of those moments uh, of stepping out of any agenda into immediate open awareness. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's sort of like anybody who starts meditation, it's probably intelligent for them to start like in a shrine room or something like that, where it's quiet it's sort of uplifted, it's, you know, it's spacious, in a similar way, we can think of our therapeutic work, as cleaning up the environment uh, of our inner experiencing, we're uh, basically uh, addressing our fascination with distractions, uh, understanding that those distractions serve the function of keeping us out of our panic, let's say, or of openness. And so, From that point of view, it's not like there's a problem that's supposed to be healed. It's more like, it's not like a problem that there's traffic out in the street, but that's not where you want to start meditating. uh, uh, For practical reasons. Uh, There's not a problem that we have what we call neuroses, those are efforts to take care of ourselves. But some people are going to investigate whether the benefit is worth the price tag they pay. And maybe It might make sense to some people to consider that we actually have an investment in generating what we call problems, because I think our attention tends to stop at anything that we call a problem because it's like a threat. And, oh, I've got to take care of this threat before I go any deeper. I don't want to be more vulnerable until I've solved this problem. Whether, you know, 100,000 years ago, it's like there's a noise in the bush. I want to figure out what it is. You know, am I going to eat it or is it going to eat me before I just, you know, sit down on this rock here, take a snooze. And so uh, uh, I think it's, um, I find it helpful just to assume that everything we're doing is our effort to take the best care of ourselves possible. And it's just a matter of, is it working? And that depends on what our priorities are, what our intentions are. Yeah. I don't so I don't see that that there's a problem in our unconscious I think the problem is our agenda that there's not supposed to be an unconscious some you know middle-class educated fantasy that we're supposed to be without limitations
0: so so there's a couple of things here that are just so juicy one if I'm hearing you properly is is the distraction value of our problems in fact the I love what you say in your book. It's really brilliant. It's one of the best chapters or best uh, paragraphs. Where you know, abs- absent a central struggle, right? What what happens when we're absent a central struggle? And so, this is why I think we love soap operas. We love drama because it, it gives some. It gives um, the ego developmental level of, a, a place to rub against something, right? So, this is an amazing thing. How how ego, as an arrested form of development, is pathologically invested. In its problems and therefore generates problems as a high level form of distraction, right?
1: How would would it be to drop the pathological from that statement?
0: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. That's spot on.
1: Maybe dropping the pathological from our cancer that's in our body.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. But also, along with this, let me make sure I understand what you're saying here. You you use this really interesting phrase to be a location of awareness. It, it, were, were you talking, I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Were you talking about yourself in a the therapeutic capacity to act as a location of awareness? And, and what came to me along these lines, and again, I may be way off base here, is when I worked with you, one of the things I, I enjoy, but I know other people like, yeah, I'm not sure I can deal with this guy, is your role as a disruptor. Your 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 willingness, your fearlessness, your capacity to get into people's faces. This is what I mentioned earlier when I said, I love this quality of your BS meter. is So sensitive, your ability to actually see, and then, and then cut into this truth. So I, the reason I mentioned this is because we've been talking a little bit about what seems to be um, off when things aren't working well, but how about what's what, what seems to be off when things are working well? Um, the tyranny of success, you know, you've got, you got, you, seemingly have your life all together. You've got it all together, no overt problems, but Hey, we know better than that. Right.
1: And how, how would it, how would it, what would your experience be if you were dropped the tyranny, uh, uh, part of that?
0: You mean the tyranny of success, your success so, period? Well, just that,
1: uh, some curiosity, uh, how do we, uh, how does, uh, How do successful, fortunate life circumstances both support and uh, act as an obstacle to greater wakefulness? Yeah. As soon as we say tyranny, we've pathologized it, and it's a bad thing. And now we're supposed
0: to change it. Yeah. Well, so what in this regard, this is so juicy. What in, in, in your regard, then what constitutes an obstacle? Because on one level in the Tantra and the Vajrayana, um, op- obstacles are op- um, opportunities in disguise. Um, so is is it too facile? I mean, this has always been a very interesting thing for me, like what, what constitutes a legitimate obstacle? And, and what is is basically a projection, uh, a distraction strategy, or whatever?
1: Yeah, good question. I don't have an answer to that. Uh, but I would say that um, what might be called a an actual relative obstacle is something that we actually don't have the capacity to deal with. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. from a practice point of view, most of our obstacles aren't literal, physical, environmental, situational obstacles, we're going to deal with them however we deal with them. They're usually an an addition to our immediate experience. That is uh, an expression of our refusal to uh, go into experiential intensity. This is just too disturbing. It's too much, too scary, too overwhelming. So I'm going to avoid it, of course, because I think I'm going to die, you know, unconsciously. And so as soon as I avoid something, then I give it the appearance of being an obstacle. Yeah, It's not that it's an obstacle or not an obstacle uh, on a sort of psychological level. It's my attitude toward it. And that can be worked with.
0: Yeah, that's really, really great. So what would... In in this, in your view, what would constitute awakening? I mean, th- this is such a loaded term for me today. Um, especially the the word enlightenment. I mean, it just gives me the creeps because it's almost almost like evil. Enlightenment seems, enlightenment seems to be the other end, It's kind of reified uh state of whatever. And so um, I'm curious what languaging you use for what is colloquially translated as enlightenment. And what what does realization, awakening, enlightenment? look like here?
1: Well, uh, I don't uh, know what enlightenment is or looks like, uh, because I'm a confused human, uh, to use that language. Um, And I've been around teachers who I think, probably are very wakeful, I don't, I don't know what enlightenment means. Uh, But uh, I don't, uh, that's not part of my reference point. Uh-huh. i don't i don't have an uh, goal of enlightenment my intention is in the present moment which is to be consciously participating in this endless dream of my experiencing
0: <laughs> i think that I, I i think that's a an enlightened
1: attitude Yes, well, we could say it's an enlightened like, attitude that one practices <laughs> doesn't mean assault has gotten enlightened, you know.
0: I, I guess what I'm doing here is I'm trying to be a little bit of a devil's advocate in, in the pot. Right. That's good. About about, about people in, in the in the Western world, be included, who somehow feel that there's this, this the fruition of their fruitional view, that there's a particular static, whatever, whatever, whatever they may project out onto this notion of enlightenment. And, and this is also deeply connected to a, a, a thing I'm rolling on these days is the two biggest things wrong with the spiritual path. One, the use of the word spiritual. Two, the use of the word path, right?
1: That sort of covers it.
0: <laughs> exactly. I think those are colossal blind spots again. Uh-huh. So so I, I guess that's uh, maybe help help the, the average listener um, in addition to what you're saying, which is so rich. Work with a promise and peril of of aspiration. I, again, I hope, I hope you see the the impressionistic painting I'm I'm throwing up here. Well,
1: I think you are working. Uh, you've said with uh, what uh, could be called reverse meditations.
0: Yes, yeah, correct. Yeah, very similar to
1: this work, actually. So, yeah, yeah. And so I think that can be very practical, not for everyone, but basically when somebody has a project that there's some component of compulsivity or a fundamental aggression uh, toward, then I usually assume that that compulsive component is an effort to get away from something that's already being experienced. Mm -hmm. and So I find it helpful to just, for myself, as much as I'm willing, or for others, to invite some investigation. Well, what is it that's already there And is it helping you to uh, move in the direction you think you want to move in to ignore something that's already there? You know, you're not willing to work with it, it creates unnecessary suffering, it generates the sense of being divided against oneself, you think it's a problem which prevents greater vulnerabilities, blah, 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 you know. (laughs) So so I, I think it's very helpful when somebody has that sort of goal of transcendence to invite them to come back to the messy, embodied, immediate experience that I'm just a confused, messy human, and I probably will be till I die. So, And what's your objection to being who you happen to find yourself to be?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, would it be, again, too facile to say that, that before you can become a Buddha, you have to become fully human? And maybe being fully human is what it means to become a Buddha, right?
1: I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't say you have to do this before that happens.
0: Yeah, well said as well. Yeah, I love all the, uh, the little uh, burrs you threw in here. So to me, <laughs> one of the things that, that's important here as well, and and I see it in, in our relationship and in the way you roll, is is the wonderful dance um, that keeps us from turning into a wrestling match and a struggle between not too tight, not too loose. That there is a path quality. We're talking about inquiry. We're talking about therapeutic work. We're talking about spiritual practice. There's obviously some level of effort involved. Otherwise, it's not a path. And we're just, I mean, perhaps just a wash and completely unconscious samsaric vectors. But then again, um, not too tight, not too loose, and, and how this can be balanced with a sense of levity. I think it's one of the more playful renderings of enlightenment, right? Lighten up, yeah. release the burdens, and and, and celebrate and join. And so again, this ties back to the very first thing the, the relationship between the developmental and the fruitional. Then on one level it's just like what does Suzuki Roshi say? You're all perfect, which you could all use a little improvement. Right. Yes. Yeah, so I, I mean like somewhere that. somewhere in there that's bloody beautiful. So that you know you dance, you celebrate, you celebrate the majesty, the misery, um of of the human condition, and and then you realize that there there again this this um uh, lack of resolution between these um previously contradictory ways of relating to life and in reality. And so I mean these these are this is really incredibly practical stuff, right? I mean, this is stuff that can really help us leave uh or I should say lead a life of, of greater awakening, greater enlightenment, greater freedom and maybe. <laughs> maybe. Well, hey, high-five, man. <laughs> so let's put it this way. Outside of that, maybe. What else? What else did I just say in that brief monologue that that um, may not land with you? Or there weren't some, you know, centrifuging out some clarity. <laughs> anything? Anything? That, anything?
1: <clears throat> oh, I know you didn't uh, mean it, but people listening to you might hear. Uh, just lighten up, you know. Celebrate as uh, a prescription or a command, even. But that's not a very light way of being to have an agenda that i should be other than i am yeah yeah and so i think uh that one way of talking about our practices for the foreseeable future are i think most of them can best be understood as recovery practices Mm. not as achievement practices or prevention practices Mm -hmm. i just assume i'm going to go off into a self-absorbed states into self-commentary blah 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 and then, if I have a moment of awareness that cuts that apparent solidity, I have a choice, and I can come back to my intention, my practice of being present, especially perhaps in some embodied way. But then I'm gone. Then I come back. Then I'm gone. Come back. Uh, so, and, an analogy I sometimes offer is like if somebody's riding a bike, you stay upright by cooperating with always being out of balance. Yeah, there is no achievement. And so part of our work is to learn to have uh, less extreme swings. Because the bigger the swing, the more anxiety is put into the system. And the more anxiety we put into our system, the more tendency toward wanting resolution, going into uh, survival mode, losing access to some adult capacities, black and white organization, things like that. So the more we can recognize when we're starting to feel a little off in one way, like, oh, I'm going for freedom oh, I'm getting absorbed in my dramas, oh, and catch it more and more quickly, I think there's less unnecessary energy spent on uh, crisis management and more potential for, oh, I, I'm I'm not worried about falling at the moment so I can look around and enjoy the scenery as I'm biking along or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's really beautiful. And, and an exclamation point, Bruce, to this really – lovely, powerful statement that these are recovery practices, not achievement practices. I think that's really, really spot on because, I mean, when I look at the two ways um, of relating to meditation altogether on one level, again, there's the provisional validity of the path, right? Um, and that when I engage in meditations, I'm I'm going to acquire, just like any other discipline, I'm playing golf or the piano, I'm going to achieve particular qualities of mind. I think that's completely valid. But I think from a more fruitional point of view, again, this is another return to the developmental fruitional. From a more fruitional point of view, meditation is a process of discovery. It's it's basically a way of relaxing, again, opening and allowing these um, noble qualities of heart-mind to naturally shine. But then you get the issue from from the Darwinians about the place of evolution and all this, right? So where, where does evolution actually play here? Um, so I'm curious about that if that says anything to you. But I really wanted to emphasize, and let, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, relating to meditation in this in this pra- uh, way of discovery versus achievement, relax, open. Really, on one level, as you know, in the Mahamudra Zokchen teachings, the one word summarizes the whole path: relax, open, or two words: open, relax. And then these qualities just naturally shine. Maybe. Yeah. 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 Maybe. <laughs> you're like, I love it, man. You're, you're like you're like a you're like a little bead of mercury, you know. <laughs> I can't put closure. I can't, you know, I try to put my finger down on you. And it's like booze, I got this, right? Maybe. Right. <laughs> so um you you introduce one of the a term that's one of the greatest contributions of this book, which is anxiety and one's relationship to anxiety. Um, so talk to us a little bit about that. And then maybe if we have time, how amateurs sure isn't the right word, but um, the relationship of anxiety to fear. But these days, oh my gosh, do we do we live in a world of anxiety? I mean, anti-anxieties or agents are everywhere and distraction really is largely about running away from anxiety. So talk to us a little bit about the the, the centrality of, of anxiety in your work Um, Because again, I thought this was such a seminal contribution in this book. Well, it
1: seems to me that it's helpful to consider anxiety on several levels, not just as if it's a monolithic reality, uh, because what we're dealing with is our experience of reality. We're never dealing with anxiety as an objectively existing thing, like everything. And so I think it's very helpful to understand the likelihood that anxiety and fear are probably hardwired and at the center of our evolutionary biology. Probably anxiety and fear have been on the planet millions of years before there were any humans in up, you know, higher life forms. It's what has what keeps a species alive, basically, is to put survival as a higher priority than improving the quality of your life at that moment. If you don't survive, you don't pass on the genes, you're not there tomorrow. So I think all of us uh, would probably find that anxiety is just a part of being human, but nobody likes to feel anxiety. We don't like to feel hurt or scared or powerless or angry or anything like that. So it's very natural, not accurate, that most of us are going to look for an apparent cause of reality. I'm anxious because, I might lose my job. I'm anxious because of climate change. I'm anxious because my partner is late coming home at work. I'm anxious, you know, whatever. I might have cancer. Uh, So I think we have an impulse to try to have an explanation for anxiety because unconsciously, if there's an explanation, a cause, then we can sort of hold out the idea that there's a solution. And if only I fix the cause, then I can have a life free of anxiety. So Most people are uh, unconsciously always attributing a cause for their anxiety where I personally think it's just a part of being human. And if that's accurate, it's probably better to practice, train ourselves to have a relationship with anxiety, period, with no explanation. And that's often what I invite people to experiment with is just keep bringing awareness into embodied uh, experience, uh, sensation level experience, no interpretation, especially around anxiety and fear and see, well, okay, where's the harm? Where's the actual threat to our, our survival? We're not going to get rid of it. We have to learn to work with our biology, but perhaps start, start to tease apart our uh, somewhat unconscious identification with it. It's like, you know, first three chakras, the biological chakras, or you don't get a human life without them, but we don't want to stop there. Mm-hmm. We want to explore higher levels of human potential. But that means we have to have a relationship, not be in denial or repression or something. So I think it's very important to train ourselves to have the attitude that I'll probably have moments of anxiety many, many times every day of my life until I die. Mm-hmm. So what, you know? That sucks. I don't like it. Feels like I'm going to die. Blah, blah, blah. But okay. After we've practiced that for several thousand times, we may find a sort of a willingness to feel that panic, you know, and not think we immediately have to do something about it. Uh, That's, you know, somebody has to check that out for themselves. It's not a police system. And then on a psychological level, uh, one view in, in the West is that Anxiety can be understood as a signal that disowned, repressed material is sort of threatening to come out into our awareness. And it could be because of something's happening in our life. It could be uh, our environment, as you were saying, you know, politics, you know, uh, climate change, everything. Um, And it could be because we're maturing. And we're starting to have more confidence in ourselves, and have some life experience and more resilience. And so, unconsciously, we're starting to give ourselves the signal that what was not uh, workable as a child—my rage, my grief—you know—might start to arise, and we should expect some anxiety about that. That's a big topic, of course. Um, another aspect of on the psychological level is that. One, some people have described fear as a response to immediate threat and anxiety as an anticipation of possible threat. So, when somebody's not actually being threatened, anxiety uh, has this sort of uh, uh, fertile ground because I'm anxious, but it hasn't happened yet. And that's very fertile territory for me to then project all sorts of unresolved issues. And so often, Uh, anxiety is a sort of a ground for me to continue projecting my unresolved conditioned history uh, that I take it seriously and then act as if uh, it's a real immediate problem. Uh, But if we can train ourselves just to stay with immediate experience of anxiety, without any interpretation, without resolution, we may find it's really disturbing. That's the nature of it. It's supposed to be disturbing. That's what kept our species alive. It grabs our attention away from immediate distraction or pleasure or something like that. So, but so what, you know, we're not going to suddenly not be non-biological beings. Then on a more spiritual path level, I would personally understand anxiety is an accurate response to openness from egoic experiencing. And again, go experiencing. I don't see it as wrong. I just see it as not accurate um, so that we can consider that uh, our anxiety in addition to the biological and the psychological, we could use our anxiety as uh, a little signal to check out, am I sort of uh, trying to escape from uh Unconditional openness right now, unconditional open awareness. I mean, yes, of course. <laughs> I mean, a, we we could be pretty sure of the answer to that. So it's more about how am I doing it? And is it necessary? Could I tolerate maybe a second or two of no definition, just presence? You know? Yeah. But, but personally, at this point in my life, I see it more as, as a confused human. I see it more as a practice of having a relationship with openness rather than some achievement of openness. If that happens, that will be nice, you know, But I'm not counting on it. But I do find that the more frequently we invite and actually have a momentary experience of freedom, openness, presence, embodiment, whatever we call it, it starts to actually affect the texture of our ongoing experiencing. Like if we were wearing this mask, that was just a solid front. We could imagine that a moment of awareness is like taking a little uh, needle and poking a hole in it. And if we do that very frequently at some point, we actually start seeing through that apparent solidity without having to make it go away. And so I, happen to be an advocate of sort of a lot of short incremental practices. I think that's uh, certainly a Dzogchen view, I think. yeah. But that seems to me to make a lot of sense of uh, tolerating openness, tolerating formless panic in very, very small doses like, hey, whatever. If it's a second, great. The point is to bring our intention into That experience without worrying about how long it is, but to do it frequently rather than sit there for half an hour trying to achieve openness or something like that.
0: Um. Incredibly rich, incredibly rich. And it also, in a kind of an alchemical tantric way, transforming seemingly obstacle into opportunity. Then things like um, anxiety and fear actually become intimations of reality, intimations of truth, and, and that we could actually use them as indicators. And this is, I think, really important on the spiritual path, because let me see how this lands with you, Bruce. I, I think on one level, uh, fear, and, and it's kissing, causing anxiety, um, is the affective expression of ignorance. It's the relative groundwork of all of samsara. And that it's not the relative group, uh, groundwork of reality, but it's the relative the groundwork of samsara, which then, of course, I mentioned earlier, life is a very sophisticated avoidance strategy to avoid this truth, this fear. And so in my own experience, in a really deep retreat, or people who are engaged in psychedelics and, and are coming apart, well, on, on a very real level, um, one result of that openness, that coming apart, archetypally represented in the fear of uh, death, is, is basically just fear. Because fear is what? Fear is, is, along with anger, and to me, it's like, what is uh, fear reifies the future, anger reifies the past. These are the two most reifying, reconstituting emotions that we have, and so if you look at ego as the archetype of this reification, this constitution, in the negative sense, this this all comes down to a very powerful point: that fear, if it's related to, and this is the other super big point, this word you you coined, and this just relationship, man. If if we can relate to fear in the right way it can become a good thing. In other words, we can actually see it as markers of progress um, instead of regress. Um, Pema Chodron has made a career out of this, right? The places that scare you, I mean, basically when things fall apart. And so I think, again, this is really a foundational importance for deeper divers who are really fundamentally, they're on the path of deconstruction, discovery. I mean, we're talking about these recovery practices. Well, they sound good on paper, but deep recovery, deep deep practice like this is the path of deconstruction. It's like death in slow motion. So I just want to put an exclamation point on this because for people who are engaged, there's some existential anxiety quite literally here. There's some fear. There's some some disquietude. Again, if it's related to properly, you completely recontextualize, you reframe it, you make a new crucible. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, you can relate to these things in a huge way. So in, in, in many ways, if there is a, one of the key archetype. Um, narratives of your book is is the importance of of relationship. Then, in a certain way, whatever comes up, doktan view perfectly pure. It's fine if you leave it just the way it is. The issue really is not muscling it, not controlling it. The issue is relationship because that is something we can control. So, can you say a little bit more about that? Because this is highly empowering for practitioners that you may not be able to 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 control. In fact, good luck with that. The arising of 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 what. Takes place in your mind, a phenomenal world, but what you can't control is your relationship, and I think in many ways that's one of the central teachings of this book.
1: Yeah, just to, before we move into that, just I'd <laughs> add that I I would agree that we can learn to use anxiety, fear, anger, grief as uh, very accurate, valuable uh, energies on our path work. But I think a a possible temptation for a spiritual practitioner would be to relate to all anxiety as existential anxiety and dismiss the fact that there is biological anxiety and there is psychological anxiety that, uh, and different levels of experience, I think require different interventions, different practices, different understandings. So, uh, you know, some, uh, some people... Potentially, might use that with what we call spiritual bypassing to just say, oh, it's just insubstantial in its nature. But, well, geez, you know, every day of my life, I'm going to feel anxious because I'm a biological being, you know.
0: Anyway, beautiful. Well, again, just really, really brief, Bruce. I think this is why I'm such a big fan of integral approaches because there, again, there is a place for healthy fear, evolutionary place for healthy fear, anxiety, the whole thing. There is a place. The issue is finding that place, keeping it there and relating to it properly,
1: right, and that relating to it properly at a biological level is not going to be the same as relating to it as a spiritual path level, yeah, I might actually want to change my physical environment or get change my relationship or something.
0: And in your, in your experience, it's pretty easy to suss those two out. I mean, I mean,
1: um, I I tend to see everything as an ongoing experiment, not, you know, (laughs) <laughs> so we're gonna, we're just falling through space, winging it, and then right. we do our best shot and then we see how things unfold. And if they're going in the direction we like, we do more of it and not, we do less of it. So, right. um, but as far as relationships, <laughs> yeah. um, well, first of all, obviously from a Buddhist point of view, uh, it makes sense to me that all of our relative experiencing is relational in its nature. And that, I, as far as I can understand, it's only open awareness that is without relative constructive nature. So, all of our path is relative, and so we don't take any of it too seriously, but we make use of it, I think. And so, uh, I would agree with the basic idea that we're not actually in control. Of what arises in the stream of experiencing. We have influence, but that's different than control. And underneath that is even an unexamined fantasy, often that there is a self that somehow has either influence or control, but it's all, <laughs> it's right. all just co-arising, you know. It's we're just weighing we're just it, you know. Uh, it's not even a we, but anyway, on a relative level, we, of course, talk that way. Um, and so then the way we relate to our experience is what we have the most influence over, usually. Uh, and it seems to me that it makes sense to do what works, give it, given our intention, given our priorities, our values. Uh, if somebody's interested in, in more experience of freedom, I think it's helpful to practice uh, unconditional practices, mm-hmm. unconditional kindness, unconditional acceptance, unconditional immediacy, body event, like that. Because it's, I think those uh, the unconditional aspect of it is sort of an approximation of open awareness. Just like I would say in therapy, uh, I tend to start with most people, uh, with the view of personal responsibility. Because I think, until we are willing to practice personal responsibility, uh, it's very likely that we are going to stop with the appearance of the problem of sort of being a victim of life, and being resentful toward life, whether it's our partner or our job or the politics or anything. Uh, and again, it doesn't mean I'm responsible for what's arising. But I'm responsible for how I work with what's arising, and then out of that ground of personal responsibility is starts to be the possibility of choice and uh, challenging compulsivity. And one way to challenge compulsivity is to, as we talked about earlier, intentionally practice exactly what we're avoiding, yeah. and find out it's not going to kill us. We may never prefer that, but it's oh, I could do my preferred self-sufficiency thing, or but I could tolerate feeling dependent or vice versa or whatever. So then as we start to have more experience of choice, we're starting to introduce in the middle some, some open ground because now we can't really take sides and say one is the right way to be. And so out of that then is a more conscious practice of holding and tolerating contradictory experience with no fantasy of resolution ever. And then as a next step, uh, we can practice not knowing as sort of a more focused uh, attention to that middle ground. But it's still from the it's still on the side of uh, relative experience, because it's not knowing as if we should know. Yeah. And then, of course, we might then have more frequent moments of just open awareness, which has no reference point. But anyway, that's uh, not exactly what you're asking, but I I think it's a a useful progression in one's personal work.
0: No, I think it is. And and again, it's it's, it's just like some of these other things you're talking about that, that it echoes up and down the food chain, so to speak, that on one level, we don't have to go too far aside here, but I think on one level, you can really argue that the only thing that exists is relationship. So we talk about relationship in this more colloquial way, but I think this, again, is iterative of this foundational premise. And what's one way to talk about emptiness, dependent origination, the only thing that exists is relationship. And so this ties in also beautifully, again, there's so many things here, this ties in beautifully to also one of my favorite parts of your book is, in fact, working with relationships, i.e. intimates and the like. And and I, what a marvelous opportunity, again, this can be without getting too clinical about this. I've heard it said that short of living with a guru, the next best thing is being in an intimate relationship because there's so much, what, you know, projection, transference, counter-transference and all that. So tied into this are a couple of things, Bruce. One is is the ability to work with intimate relationships, taking this this, this uh, phenomena of relationship to a very kind of um, embodied practical level. And also tied into this is something you talked about earlier that I wanted to get back to. And again, I know I'll throw a couple of things on the wall here is you were talking about disowned the material, um, how this works in classic psychological work worlds with um, the unconscious mind. And even though you don't use this term much, in fact, I don't remember reading it in the book at all. If it's there, I don't recall it shadow work because yeah. on one level. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, I don't use that work uh, that word usually
0: yeah so if you don't mind like um uh, why don't you again yeah. not tossing so many things out here but maybe let's start from the end and then work our way back why don't you use the the, the notion of shadow work in the Jungian way how how do you find that either problematic or, or whatever and then maybe we can return to the kind so, of more like everything
1: who knows you know
0: <laughs> I never know why I have my various preferences but
1: but the explanation I would come up with uh, <laughs> is that I think for most people, shadow has a negative connotation. Hmm. And so uh, I think that the connotation is, oh, there's this uh, sort of bad or some problematic part of me. And the point is to bring it out into awareness, which is sort of Western depth therapy. It's like that which is unconscious, make conscious is sort of a mantra of depth therapies. Uh, it's not wrong. It's it's very valuable, but the the idea of shadow to me uh, carries that um, sort of idea of I need to change something rather than considering well, you don't get to be a being in light without a shadow. Let's say, mm-hmm. and so why why do I think it's wrong to have disowned parts of myself? Uh, I could spend hours a day for the rest of my life, uh, mining my unconscious experience to try to bring everything out into open awareness, which on a practical level could be very helpful. But is that really how I want to spend my life trying to uh, improve myself? What about just being at peace with being a confused human, who's always going to have neuroses? And if they cause problems, I'll work with them. Otherwise, why? Why do I think I'm supposed to somehow get rid of being human? You know, I think there's some pretty fundamental aggression underneath that. That's very basic to Western culture.
0: I think if I might, if I might just interject very quickly, I, I couldn't agree more with that. But as you know, when Carl Jung coined this term, my understanding was shadow basically was not necessarily negative and deleterious I mean you can have these golden shadows it's basically the phenomenology is, is a little bit I totally get what you're saying and now I understand why you're not using it but um, I mean in terms of the way he used it I thought it was a little bit more open probably much more open yes <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, uh,
0: yeah so intimate relationships intimate, intimate relationships is as path one of the things I just, I love your usage of this term This just spoke to me probably because I'm a bad employee, employer. I'm a bad employer is I I love your usage of the term because I look at when you pointed this out to me and I looked at my experience, it was, it was, it was, it was a comic tragedy because it's like, holy crap, you're right. You talk about how it is that we hire, right? How we hire relationships. And again, it's like, I'm I'm a bad employer because I keep hiring the same people that I need to fire. So talk to us a little bit about that, because that, to me, I I found that really painfully illuminating. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this
1: is more on the side of Western therapy, of course. But But the view that I think is mm, usually uh, supported when somebody starts looking deeper is that whatever we have disowned in ourselves, first of all, again, my view is not that it's bad or neurotic or pathological. It's just no, this was the best effort I made as a child to adapt to a distorted emotional environment. And uh, the, the, a healthy adaptation to a distorted environment requires a distorted survival strategy. But then of course, we get identified with it, it gets internalized, we carry it into adulthood where it's now decades out of date. But most of us have come into adulthood with disowned experience which really means that i am making a constantly effortful creative disciplined uh sort of practice of pretending that i'm not feeling what i'm feeling mm-hmm. it's not actually buried you know it's i have it's in every moment on some level we have to make a lot of effort to keep this out of our awareness because it's there you know if i Said, oh, I'm going to ignore, you know, my toes because I don't like the way they look. It takes a lot of effort to not look down there, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but anyway, uh, when we come into adulthood with what we call these disowned energies, they're still there. And so they have to be related to. But if I'm not willing to have a conscious, embodied kind of relationship myself, then I'm very practical but not helpful. Uh strategy is to find a partner who apparently uh, specializes in being exactly that way. That way, it's very obvious that the location of that energy is over there with them. (laughs) And then I can complain about them being that way, but never take effective action to change anything, not have effective boundaries or ask them to change their behavior or talk with them about how it affects me. I'll just have this attitude of complaint that I can hold. And then I'm very happy that they're the location of these uh, disowned, you know, experiences, mostly feelings. And if it's a good neurotic fit, codependent fit, of course, they're doing the same with me. And when I've worked with couples, I'd say maybe nine out of 10 couples have this sort of complementarity uh, that operating somewhat unconsciously, where they have ritualized their relationship, where each actually experiences the other as the cause of their difficult feelings. And it's a great, you know, it's a great agreement. Uh, You know, hey, I'll blame you for my difficult experience, you blame me for yours, I'll complain about you, you complain about me, and neither of us will have any effective boundaries or do anything about it. Because if we did, we'd be in danger of owning it ourselves, you know, (laughs)
0: Oh, you cra- I mean, you're cracking me up because it's just so true. So don't let me interrupt. You're on a roll here, man. It's just killing me because it's so true and effing funny. But keep, keep going.
1: But it's sort of funny if 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 it's other people,
0: <laughs> right? Exactly. We see in others what we're blind to in ourselves, right? The same blind
1: what we're pretending to be blind to, right? <laughs> right.
0: Touche. Yeah, that's really great.
1: So if we are pretending to not be aware of that aspect of ourselves we don't have to do anything to find it we it's like a you know it's like the Dzogchen or approach we just relax into immediate experience and stay embodied because we're not going to find any evidence of a problem i think ever outside of concepts yeah we're going to find pain we're going to find activation we're going to find you know uh sort of shaky sensations, whatever, but we're not going to find problems, you know, and so the more we practice embodied immediacy, especially if we practice coming back to uh, that many times a day, not waiting for a problem, just make, I, I forget the term you used that we make it a habit, sort of uh, yeah. uh, immediacy, then it's possible every moment we do that, and find because then we check it out and see, well, where's the problem? Every moment we find that no evidence of a problem in our experiencing, it's possible that gradually, we start to undermine our fantasy that there's a problem in us. That maybe my rage, my grief, my jealousy, my sadism, whatever it is, isn't a problem. It's just an aspect of my experience that I have to learn to work with. If I start being more intimate with myself, then I can tolerate perhaps being more intimate with my partner. But if I refuse to be intimate with aspects of my experience, I have to keep my partner at a certain distance and sort of uh, uh, handle things in a unilateral way uh, because to me, intimacy is guaranteed to be inherently provocative, disturbing, never resolvable. And so our partners are guaranteed to trigger any unresolved issues we carry just through the friction of being so close and engaged. And so most of us ritualize our relationship in ways that guarantee this sort of uh, distance through apparent problems. And there's some predictable things like chronic conflict or miscommunication or loss of sexuality or... One up, one down dynamics turning into buddies, running a family, absorption at work, absorption with parenting—you know, things like that—all of which have distancing functions because we are uh, inaccurately relying on our partner to be what we're not willing to take responsibility for in ourselves, yeah. our codependency, uh, and so you know, uh, working with you know. A number of thousands of couples over the years, uh, I tried to recall, and I don't think I've probably worked with even ten couples who have come into therapy asking for help and be more separate. (laughs) So, which is really the work that has to happen at first, you know, (laughs) to challenge this emotional fusion. But because couples use these apparent problems as a way of regulating their inappropriate emotional fusion, those couples have the fantasy that the problem is not enough connection. So they want help in feeling more connected. And that's supported by a culture where we are told that intimacy is synonymous with closeness and connection, Mm -hmm. rather than the possibility that healthy intimacy requires the never resolvable disturbance of the fact that we're existentially alone, personally responsible, responsible, separate, and we're also completely interconnected, want to give and receive love, uh, care about uh, others, want to be cared about. So most couples end up uh, having to find problematic ways of introducing separateness in relationship as a relief from the claustrophobia of inappropriate fusion, and then think that the problematic ways they get uh,
0: separateness are the problem in the relationship. So that's, that's a lot of no, it's it's this like effing brilliant, Bruce. I mean, part part of me just wants to burst out laughing, right? It's just it's just so like it, it's so brilliant, it's so complex, it's so messy. It's it's so in a certain way. I was going to say sick way, but it's not. It's kind of actually quite beautiful. So so how? Yeah, we're very clever people. <laughs> oh my god, it's it's unbelievable. And so so on one level, really, on one level, I, I read your book, I listen to you now i really on one level for me, this is just exhilarating. I mean, I, I find it just like, it's so stimulating. It's so exhilarating, but I can also um, imagine how some people listening might go, holy crap, man, this is daunting. This is like, it's so complex. It's like effing hopeless. I'm just going to go drink a beer, watch football and, and kick my dog or whatever. Right. So, so how, do, how, do we, how, I, how do you roll with that? Or how, how might you recommend listeners? rolling? would with say- Go drink a
1: beer and take your dog. I'm not, I'm not in control of your life. <laughs> I'm not going to beat my head against the brick wall.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. You're killing me here. You're killing me with the truth here. So so somewhat akin to this, again, you've been doing this a really long time. So a couple questions. One is, again, it's coming back to this thing I mentioned earlier, Bruce, about how when, when I look, you know, I've, I've been around few years now. Um, I think there's something to be said. It's like Thoreau said, you know, when he went on Walden, he said, you know, I, I went to the woods and then because I wanted to, to drive life into a corner and to reduce it to its lowest terms. That to me is really quite beautiful. Um, And so this irreducibility, the healthy reductionism of reducing life to its lowest terms, which brings about kind of a radical simplicity. It, it can really help you Realize that what we see as a vast display and complexity of our life is basically just layer and layer upon avoidance and distraction. That when you start to whittle down, this is the healthy deconstruction, right? You start to take it down. You start to see these fundamentally irreducible patterns. You're just being infinite varieties of the same theme. And so, in your decades and decades of doing work, you've mentioned you work with thousands of couples. A couple of things. Um, how do you sustain your energy um, to keep doing this without either, you know, just bursting out in laughter or, uh, again, you know, just maintaining a compassionate, open heart? How do you sustain that kind of activity to do that? And and do you, in fact, ever get surprised um, after decades of doing this? Does somebody come in with like, whoa, I, I've never seen this one before? Or because of your experience, are you able um, to kind of I, I think we get, you get know, what I'm saying, slot it in, reduce it in a healthy way to these particular patterns that, that are, are beneficial to them.
1: Well, uh, my experience, which may or not be accurate, is that uh, I experience pretty much every moment is fresh. And so it doesn't really matter if I'm saying the same thing, it's fresh. Nice. If I, if I have some orange juice, this morning, I'm not going to say, oh, what a drag. I had orange juice last, you know, yesterday morning. Uh, if I look out at the ocean, I'm not going to say, oh, this is so dead. The ocean was there yesterday. What's the meaning of life? You know, <laughs> that's all concept. And so the more we stay out of substituting concept for immediate experience, we start to use concepts. And experience every moment is fresh. it's not it's very hard to burn out or to get cynical. Nice. those are attitudes. those are formulas that we use to avoid immediacy. you know they're not descriptions of reality. So uh, i I don't experience getting tired of saying similar things. and because everything is fresh, actually, we've never been in this moment before. you know, it's just reality. Um, every moment has a quality of surprise. And so it's not like Hmm. I'm in my formula. Now I'm going to get surprised, but from doing this a long time, I find that certain patterns tend to be often useful for people to investigate. And if it's not, doesn't fit, it doesn't fit. I don't have an agenda that is supposed to, and I'm not the best fit for everybody. uh, So, uh, if somebody doesn't find my approach helpful, I'm very supportive of their looking, you know, for somebody with a better fit for them. Sure. Um, um, And as far as the reductionist thing, uh, I think I would agree that as we get down into more fundamental, immediate, embody non interpretive experiencing, we increase our potential for deeper transformative change. And I think it's very important not to uh, take what's deeper, as if it's more true than what's superficial. Nice. If a non dual approach in my limited understanding is that uh, relative and absolute are inseparable and don't manifest as the same. Relative, you know, experience is just as valid. uh, But there are reasons why we might want to have conscious participation and more open, absolute experience. Uh, Part of it is that we then don't take either so seriously.
0: Hmm.
1: If we have both the deep, the depth and the surface, it's hard to take the surface so seriously. But also, if we don't sort of try to escape from the surface, then it's hard to take refuge in the absolute, which a lot of practitioners try to do, of course. So I prefer to hold both as we've talked about today, round and round, uh, hold both with no resolution ever. So
0: no, really just, just, just spot on. And, and, and so I, you know, as so we start to kind of close up, because Otherwise, I could be entertained by you forever. <laughs> and, and
1: you as well. My, my, great <laughs> but, talking together. <laughs>
0: oh my gosh, it's so it's so fun. I can't tell you. So so um I'm a I'm a card-carrying Buddhist for tax purposes, right? But I'll take truth wherever I can get it. Um, I remember very clearly when I first started rolling with with the the psychological stuff and I started presenting some um teachings to you know what i would call pretty hardcore tibetan buddhist communities and others um i'm summarizing the response i got in my languaging but i I was somewhat taken aback when when double entendre intended when some hardcore people would would criticize me afterwards and say hey listen you need to get this straight buddhism doesn't need therapy i mean i think double entendre intended right and and then here's the kicker you know again somewhat paraphrasing a person like that or some other person would come back to me. So I, I teach a lot, I go to locations, I, I've seen some people 20 years ago, they attend a program, they come up with a big problem. I, I I make some suggestions. I see them 20 years later. Same problem. And they and they go see their their teacher and their teacher says, Meditate harder, meditate more, whatever. So this is this is a kind of a long-winded way to talk about the blind spots of. Uh, not just the Buddhist tradition, but maybe specifically there, since you're you're a Buddhist as well. But the other non-dual wisdom traditions, um, the 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 things that we you know we don't see that we don't see, um, and so the basically for people who are practitioners, and in a certain way, this is summarizing so much of what you've already talked about um, in our podcast today. But blind spots in in the Buddhist tradition, things that, in addition to what you what we've already talked about, could be of benefit to a practitioner so that they don't just get reified, stuck, ossified in their spirituality.
1: Well, big issue, of course. Uh, As we've talked about, at least my view is that anything that's a view is limited inherently. And so it's not, is it limited? It's just, how is it limited? Uh, It's like, if you had a dark room and you took a flashlight out and you shined it around the room, whatever the flashlight shined on would get illuminated, but everything else is dark. And so that that clarification is very specific to a certain range of phenomena and not very helpful for other things. If somebody is committed to only meditating, it might be appropriate for somebody to say, hey, just got to meditate harder. Okay. Uh, maybe in some traditional cultures like Tibetan culture, maybe that was... You know, accurate it would be like saying, Hey, if you believe in reincarnation, uh, it maybe it's like a rock at the ocean and the waves are going to keep hitting it, and you know, and in a thousand years, the rock will be gone. Okay, no problem. But you know, if somebody happens to be more Western, uh, it's possible that maybe that's not the most effective uh, response, especially from, I think, a a more non dual view, which is you don't take sides mm. between relative and absolute.
0: Mm.
1: And so you do what helps somebody experience more wakefulness and more open heartedness, more compassion, more presence, whatever we call it. And so, so it's a constant experiment. It's not like, oh, you should be in therapy. It's like, why don't you give it a try if you're feeling stuck? Mm. Or somebody's in therapy and they say, it's just not touching something that is deeper, but I can't put my finger on it. Well, why don't you try meditation, see if that is interesting, you know, helpful. So uh, again, I think it's most useful just to assume that we're profoundly limited. And uh, just be curious about what those limitations are, rather than entertain some idea, I wonder if I'm limited. And that's true, it doesn't matter if you're a practitioner or not. Uh, I have a a bias which I can't support at all, which is that I think that probably ninety-eight percent of the people in any tradition are using it more as a religion than as a spiritual path. They're using it as a way to live uh, a decent life with good values. They want companionship. They want uh, some reassurance that they're, you know, doing it right. Uh, things like that, which is okay, as well as all the distortions of religion. But religion tends to always point our attention back into itself, whereas, uh, to me, a spiritual path is always pointing us out of itself. And it th- from that point of view, I think spiritual spiritual path work is ha- has more congruence between the different traditions than it, uh, somebody using Buddhism as a spiritual path, I think, has with people using it as a religion. So uh if somebody uh says hey you know uh buddhism doesn't need therapy well maybe but that sort of attitude is a formula yeah and if they want to drink a beer and kick the dog you know why spend your energy trying to talk them out of it yeah you can say hey if it's working great you know but why are we having this discussion if it's working
0: yeah 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 or so, seemingly working right, right running running on automatic ignorance kind of thing, right? So, so Bruce, is, as we start to close this up a little bit, um, there's a there's a you're a psychonaut. You've explored the dimensions of the mind and heart from a spiritual psychological perspective for decades. Um, just just you, at the surface, <laughs> yeah, I'm not so sure about that. And you're also integral in spirit. You cast a very wide net. You you draw everywhere. Um, I mean, again, like truth, wherever I can find it kind of thing, which I really also appreciate. I'm not sure how much traffic with the, the psychedelic renaissance. I mean, it's just like here in Denver, right? The big maps conference this, this summer, 10,000 people coming, 350 presenters this is a big deal. Do you have, um, we don't have to go into this too deeply or at all, but I'm curious, what what is your under, uh, relationship endorsement of these agents? uh, What place do they have in your world? If if any, I'm just kind of curious where you land with these particular...
1: Well, I think it's great that there is this sort of uh, reawakening of such a a potentially powerful uh, tool. Um, I did a lot of psychedelics in my 20s. I was in San Francisco, you know, I guess it was in 69 back then, you know, which was its own scene, but I was doing acid every weekend for six months and it just got too much, you know, (laughs) started, started feeling a little nuts. So I stopped. Um, but, um, at this point, you know, I, I, every once in a while, I think, Oh, that would be a good idea. I'd like to try that again, but I haven't, you know, it's, I don't feel urgent about it, but I, I think, uh, You know, I've worked with a lot of people as clients uh, who have really benefited. And some Mm -hmm. people, of course, have bad trips or something. So we need to be cautious because it's so powerful. But no, I think it's uh, potentially uh, a a very uh, uh, positive uh, reemergence in this whole uh, arena that people can be introduced to open mind, let's say. Yeah, uh, experiences, without having to meditate for 20 years, and then maybe they're not even having it anyway. But I do think it's very helpful, like um, Ken Wilber's uh, different differentiation between state of mind and yeah. uh, um, states and structures, Yeah, yeah. So that somebody can have a, a genuine open mind experience, but then after they return, they're going to integrate that and understand it according to their current level of characterological development, let's say. And so it's very important to continue one's personal work, meditation, therapy, whatever people do, and not mistake momentary experiences of openness as some achievement. It has to be integrated and it'll, it'll get integrated uh, in terms of one's current capacity for openness.
0: Beautiful. Yeah, yeah, the critical difference between states and traits um, and, and pointing out transmissions, pointing out transmissions, and then the, the integration of them. And so um, any question, <clears throat> excuse me, any question that I didn't ask anything in your book that you you may want to share with us? Again, there's such a wealth here. Anything else that you want to share with our community?
1: Oh, well, you and I could keep talking for hours, that. <laughs> but it's been great to do it. I'll have to do it again. Uh, let me see, I, d- I doubt it, uh, but let me see. Uh, nothing though we haven't touched on. I would just say that, um, I think it's very helpful to consider that most of what we claim to be a problem could be understood as a retreat into self absorption. Mm-hmm. And I see self absorption, not as pathological as we've gone back and forth, but as a very primitive effort to take the best care of ourselves possible. It's like a turtle pulls back in its shell, that's not pathological. But if it stayed in its shell for the next 10 years, that would become a problem, Why would probably be dead. And so we learn these contractive uh, strategies, as you said earlier, uh, when we're very vulnerable, very powerless as children. And because they work, we tend to internalize them and then carry them into adulthood where now they are out of date. But I think it's very potentially helpful for somebody to consider training themselves. To relate to what we call neurosis, call problems, as an expression of our best effort to take the best care of ourselves possible mm-hmm. and practice unconditional kindness toward these strategies rather than dismissing them as pathological or uh, negative or they have to be healed or there's a problem there. Uh, and if somebody wants, anytime they find themselves claiming there's a problem, they could just ask, I wonder if I'm retreating into self-absorption right now. And if so, I wonder what I feel hurt about, what I feel scared about, what feels threatening right now. Uh, and one evidence of self-absorption is when our commentary is all about me. Yeah. Oh, I feel this. I didn't do that. I'm a failure. Oh, I'm a great person. You know, I, I, me, me, me. That's just a signal we can start training ourselves to recognize that it's not about that commentary. It's about I'm, I'm pulling back out of some uh, vulnerability, some formless panic, whatever, perhaps. And to just keep in mind the Buddhist sort of simultaneity of awareness and compassion, which, you know, we can say is just being willing to be honest with our experience and unconditionally kind toward anything and everything that arises. I think both of those are very reliable reference points.
0: Oh, that's really spot on. Is it, Bruce, is it facile to say that it's really great that most problems are retreats into self-absorption? Is it too facile to say, because this, uh, this is a really, uh, again, I don't want, oh, there's so much to say, but can this um, trajectory, this this vector of, of implosion, so to speak, climax and depression? I mean, like how, how, uh, Integral is this approach of self-absorption to the onset of depression. Because, I mean, I've never really suffered from clinical depression. But when I get a little bit low and down, like in darkened, boy, it's largely because it's everything's about me, me, me. It's just <laughs> big, heavy, dark. And and that is freaking depressing. Just ask my dog, right? <laughs> the dog that I, that I try to avoid kicking, right? Just kidding. I love my dog right and i uh, don't i don't drink, drink bear kick my dog i love my dog Good, but the relationship of the self-absorption to depression <laughs>
1: yeah. at that moment that you're feeling heavy and dark you could ask i wonder what i might be feeling at this moment i'm trying to escape from yeah. Yeah. and not intellectual just re-embody you know and anyway uh i think depression is very complex from what i can tell it's not my specialty but I think there's a lot of evidence that there is a biological basis for depression for many people. And if it's a biological cause, you probably are going to benefit from a biological intervention, whether it's exercise, diet, sleep, or whether it's meds or something. I'm not anti-med, but uh, although actually just as a reference, uh, a number of people who, have what could be called treatment uh, resistant depression have really benefit from microdosing psilocybin as real benefit for some people. But I think also there's the emotional, psychological arising of depression. And that's what the side of things I would have some, you know, ability to help work with anyway. Um, and I would say it's not like I don't see it as a climax of self absorption, I would see it as a retreat from intimacy with our own immediate experiencing, um, that it has to be maintained, usually through stories, and unproductive behavior, things like that. Um, So I usually see it as serving a function. Uh, I'm, I'm usually more interested in the function that what we call our problems are yeah. certainly rather than some essential nature to them. Uh, but anybody who has a biological basis of depression almost certainly is going to end up with a psychological component just from having lived with that for a number of years or decades. So there's, it's complex to work with. Uh, but, uh, but on a subtle level, I would say that uh, anytime we're in a state of self-absorption, it's sort of depressing. Because we're alienating ourselves from not only life, but from our own aliveness at that point. We're refusing to consciously participate in the truth of our immediate experience. So even at the existential level, when people say, oh, there's something missing from my life, I feel things are sort of dead or flat, I would say it's probably not their circumstances. It could be, but it's probably a refusal to participate in the truth of their immediate experience, which is probably very vulnerable and disturbing, because the immediate experience is very intense. It's not flat. <laughs> exactly.
0: Exactly. I mean, it reminds me of this this the uh, um, playful, somewhat playful maxim in the Taoist tradition. um uh, Not oh well, it, it's not a maxim, but it's a saying. Why Why am I so miserable? Because ninety nine percent of everything I say and everything I do is for myself, and there isn't one. <laughs> right And so this ties in is this ties into again, uh, what functions are these problems serving? Well um, again, is it too fast How to say that the, the vast majority of these problems are in fact serving the function of distraction, literally pulling apart from immediate embodied experience and going all the way down to this this groundless ground of, of our inherent non-existence
1: Yeah and
0: uh,
1: I would say that on the therapy side, We understand that as pulling away from, contracting away from our always present vulnerability. We're vulnerable because we're a human, we're a sensitive life form, not because there's a problem. And then underneath that is that formless panic, I think. But then on the Buddhist side, it's that uh, always present, maybe not so conscious recognition, living with the reality that there's no support for our personal identity. That's why we have to prop it up all the time. If, yeah. if it were there, we wouldn't have to do anything. To
0: maintain it. You know? yeah. yeah. To me, Bruce, again, I, I like playing with words, you know, ego is the world's most efficient and, and quickest um construction company, right? <laughs> right. Like moment to moment to moment, we're reconstructing and and right. then by media implication, creating other in, in relationship to self. So this goes, I love this stuff because. Like we said at the very outset, it, this is something. I mean, hey, this is something you can go home with and start to work with today, and then it's it's it works um, kind of trickle down um, wisdom and knowledge. It'll trickle all the way down to these deep, incredible, deep foundational um, non-dual teachings. And so I love maybe. the maybe exactly maybe I love Touche the vast the vast maybe potentially. Lucky explanatory power, right, <laughs> of all this stuff, Bruce. This has just been so great. I have to say, I, I, I leave um, like I, with the reading of your book. I leave this session with really a wonderful place. It it, it allows me to relax. Um, I leave this with the sense of, in a real way, you give me permission to be human, and that, and that, that's real meta. That's real maitri, That the messiness of the human condition the shit show that is my life. And it's not a shit show. I, li- I live a great life. But just the, the ability, again, the irreducible instruction of the path is to relax. Well, in, in a real way, these teachings allow me to just um, be myself in a real way, permission to be a human being. And that is that is a major gift. That is a massive gift. So in a certain way, this this time together is archetypal of your work. Um, right. is to understand it, which is no small thing. So. Well, it's a joy to always uh, talk with you. <laughs> and, so fun, Bruce. We'll have to do it again when your next book comes out. So anything you want to share with our group, like how how they can get in contact with you, your website? Uh, we we'll, we always link the websites below these things. Anything you're working on now that you want us to know about?
1: No, actually, I, I'm glad you asked. Just to clarify, uh, when I moved from Colorado to California, I didn't carry my... Uh, LMFT license with me Mm.
0: because
1: I'm not going to go through all the relicensing here. So I'm not working as a licensed therapist anymore. I'm working as a consultant. And as part of that, I don't work with anybody more frequently than like once a month or so. Mm. Also, I'm an old guy heading into retirement. And so I'm starting to reduce my hours. And so if somebody was interested, they could check the website, it has my email. But I have uh, added uh, with Cindy's help recently, just the note that if I uh, do not get back to somebody, I apologize, but I'm just getting more inquiries than I have the time to respond to everybody. And if I don't respond, it means I don't have current openings, but somebody could try later if they want. So. you know there's a lot of very good therapists and uh i'm going to be dead soon and you know people will get on with their lives so you don't have to worry about connecting with me that much
0: (laughs) oh man i wish i could give you a big hug my friend high five from a thousand miles away so much fun to connect with you um can't wait to see you again in person and really thank you for taking time out of your schedule to hang with us i for one um, not only is it just really really fun i wouldn't say hysterical but just it's just so delightful and so profound i mean there's such truth to what you're saying and, and the fact that it leaves me kind of giddy in, in this sense is again it's a really beautiful gift you're doing some it's wonderful well, love love uh talking to you
1: and I'm, i hope people are reading your books too
0: you know yeah i hope so too yeah i think they are to a certain extent so all the best till next time my friend Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you're enjoying the Edge of Mind podcast as much as we enjoy making it. But please spread the word, rate the podcast, review it, and subscribe to it if you haven't already. It's one way to invite more people into this community and into conversations in the fields of science, philosophy, psychology, spirituality, and the arts.